0: Welcome everyone to City Legal live stream. My name's Peter Wrench. Uh, the City Legal community exists to consider the bigger questions of life, and then we do that uh, with silks and suits in cities right around Australia. And we do that by uh, looking at the Bible together. Uh, the format for those of you who are new in our midst, well, a special welcome to you. We have a short talk followed by a QA, uh, and we should be finished by 20 past eight. And you can ask a question at any time by just using the chat function, which is at the base of uh, your screen, or is on my computer, the base of the Zoom meeting screen. Just type the question in, address it either generally or to our speaker, and uh, press enter or return, and the question should pop up. Now, we're uh, very privileged to have with us today speaking uh, David Robertson. David uh, was a Free Church of Scotland minister, uh, at St. Peter's Dundee in Scotland for, for many years, and he's now working as the one of the national communicators with City Bible Forum. And um, uh, in a moment, I'll, I'll hand you over to him, but I believe he's going to begin by reading from the Old Testament book of Job, spelt Job, and uh, he's going to read a little bit from Chapter 1. So I've shared in the chat uh, function a link there to the passage, or I'm going to actually share my screen, and uh, you can see it there. So... So over to you, David.
1: Okay. Um, Well, nice to be with you all again. And uh, just, well, horrendous, I think, personally, to be on Zoom. I hate being on Zoom. I hate, um, I find find it hard to look and think, but we're going to just look at God's word anyway. And hopefully in the not too distant future, we'll be back in silks for those of you who can make it. And for those of you who are from elsewhere, hopefully I'll see you at some other time in the flesh as they say. Uh, Job chapter 1 verses 1 to 5. Let me just read these. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Okay, Uh, you tuned into this. I don't know your background, most of you. I know some of you. Um, Some of you, perhaps the majority of you, will be Christians and some won't. And you think, okay, why am I, why am I listening to a talk about uh, a man, a desert herder, probably from around four thousand years ago, maybe three and a half thousand years ago? Well, there's lots of reasons for that. It's one of the greatest poems ever written. But it's a book. Uh, maybe I thought I would share this with you. It's a book that connects with people in a way that uh, is. I think well I put it still incredibly contemporary so I hope that you will see that and I hope that you'll you'll benefit from it in that way Um, I once decided I would preach through the book of Job now there's 40 chapters in it and it's like death death and mega death and I wondered if I'd be able to get through the whole lot if my congregation would survive and they did and I remember one day uh, a man coming up who uh, I'd buried his mother. He'd never been in church before in his life. And he came with his whole family. It was two whole pews of them. And this is in a, uh, a a small congregation. And I thought, oh no, this is going to be dreadful because it's all about death. It was one of the heavier chapters in Job. And afterwards he came out to me and uh, I'll translate for you because he spoke in broad Scots. He said, you did that deliberately. And I said, what did you mean? And he said, you you, you." Just because I don't ever come to church, you gave me a whole year's worth of talks in one go. Uh, you spoke for forty minutes. I've never heard anyone speak for more than five minutes, and uh, I, I laughed and said, "No, no, I, I normally do that. It wasn't just for you." I said, "What did you think of it?" It's always a dangerous question to ask. Oh, it was brilliant, man! It was brilliant. I didn't again, I didn't know that there was that much in the Bible, and I said, "Well, that's amazing. I've, you know, that's just one chapter. I've got hundreds more." will you be back? And he said, no. <laughs> I kept in touch with him. I ended up um, doing a, a marriage for his daughter. And, but I just thought his reaction was fascinating. He, he, he was utterly taken in by this book. Uh, and, and I hope you will. For the, we're going to do this for, for four weeks. I wanted to introduce it just by doing this general thing of, of asking the question, why is it that some people seem to be doing really well and someone else suffers? It's like, well, that's just karma, you know, or some people, you know, you rejoice in the good news of a friend, a child born, a new job, a new house. Yet at the same time, you mourn the death of another, the loss of work, the loss of a home. And part of us has this inherent human thing which says, well, you know, if I've been blessed, I deserve this. I mean, I feel very privileged. I'm living in our which as all of you know, is the nicest area of Sydney, With the classiest people (laughs) i uh you know but i feel really blessed do i deserve this i'm happily married do i deserve this i'm able to uh i'm relatively physically fit do i deserve this but then when when i was in hospital and seriously ill and dying did i deserve that and i think there's a real struggle that a lot of people will have at that In terms of this book, there's no comparable work in Middle East literature. It's a play, a drama, a poem. The prologue and the epilogue are prose. Most of it is poetry. Now, some of you may or may not like poetry. I'm I'm not sure um, where lawyers stand on poetry, I suspect. It just varies according to personality. But poetry is artistry with words. It would be interesting to see uh, uh, a lawyer poet, if you know of any Um, It's the use of sounds as well as structure and meaning. And particularly Hebrew poetry uses rhymes and rhythms. It's irregular. It's not like limerick style. But it translates very, very well. And that's why the poetic books of the Bible, which is Psalms, Song of Solomon uh, and Job, they they seem to work well in our culture and their themes seem to go really well. Job itself, a little bit of background. He lived in the land of Uz, which is uh, sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings, but, but in reality is the Middle East. South of Israel, possibly Gaza, uh, mentioned also in Jeremiah and Lamentations. Uz was almost certainly, or Huz was certainly the name of a person. So you get the Uzites or the Huzites. Um, rather than the Wild West, this would have been considered the Wild east. It would have been a, a relatively rough area. Job's name, Eob, uh, means harshly dealt with. Um, it's nothing to do with work. It is a name that was possibly given to him later in life after everything that happened to him. Um, what we're told about him is that he had a very attractive personality. He's a guy you'd want to be with. He carries this idea of complete and straight when it says in our text that he's blameless, it doesn't mean that he was without fault or sinless. It meant that Job himself acknowledged sin. He made sacrifice for sin. But it meant he was honest. He was a straight kind of guy. He, he's, he's somebody you'd want as your lawyer. He's somebody you'd want as your, your um, estate agent. He's somebody you would want as your friend. <clears throat> so there's an air of personal integrity. Peter was asking me earlier about what you once said at your your funeral. Well, um, nobody would get a eulogy as strong as Job did. Uh, Let me say something a little bit about these being the wisdom books. And this is a wisdom book. and The whole idea of wisdom, it's the art of living well in harmony with the principles on which God has made the universe. And Job reflects two aspects of that. Firstly, he feared God. Proverbs 9:10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, again, you're listening to this and you're thinking, uh, Wisdom sounds like a good thing. You know, that's a good buzzword. Uh, love's a good buzzword. Um, you know, society, community, compassion, wisdom. Yeah, we need wisdom. We need wisdom in our legal system. We need wisdom in our personal lives. Now, The thing I would say most about wisdom is Google won't give you wisdom. What Google will do will enable you to have access to lots of information. But wisdom is how you use that information. So recently, uh, I was aware of a well-known Christian who died and there were some allegations against him and someone posted those allegations on Facebook. Well, why? On the day of his death, why? the information is there. If it was true or not, we don't know. Was it wise? No, I don't think so. Wisdom is how we use the knowledge and the information that we have. And it's the perspective of our whole lives. And wisdom begins with the fear of God. And when we say fear there, we don't mean craven, cowardly fear. We mean this awe and respect for God, this reverence for God. Um. It's living in the knowledge that God exists. It's reverence, awe, and submission. It's putting God first. He doesn't speak about God in a flippant manner. And there's a moral aspect to it as well. We read that he shunned evil. Um, I'm sorry, you don't live a wise life if you go away from your, your work in the CBD or whatever and then go home and beat up your partner, visit a prostitute. Engage in corruption, lie about people. You're full of hatred. He he shunned evil. He turned away from evil. So there's two aspects: fearing God and turning away from evil. Another thing about Job is his wealth. Um, I was going to translate this into uh, modern city living, but I I just thought I'd better not risk it. Seven thousand sheep. That's a lot of sheep. we know, by the way, interesting, interesting, just a historical point, there were no horses. And that helps date the book because uh, the domestication of horses is is a long, uh, long time ago. And this seems to be before that. His wealth, we're told, was from God. Um, uh, he... It was maybe dangerous as well. Wealth is it's a good thing to have. If you've got money, it's a good thing to have. I think most of us here would not think having wealth was a really, really bad thing to have. If I was to go and, and open mail after this and discover that that someone had sent me you know a thousand dollars or or a million dollars or whatever, they, no, I'm, I'm not going to say this is a disaster. this is a terrible thing to have. But how we use it, it could actually be a terrible thing to have. It depends how we use it. By the way, uh, as, as I go on, feel free to put in any comments or qu- questions as we go. We'll look at them at the end, but also we might say some. And, uh, thanks for the challenge, uh, the answer to the challenge about whether any lawyers who are poets. Well, John Don, someone Derek has pointed out, a poet, priest, and lawyer. So yes, and also, maybe apart from Job, my favorite poet. Uh, <clears throat> Luke 12, 15, just about wealth. Watch out, says Jesus, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I find one of the hardest things in working where I live and where I work in Sydney is with people who financially pretty well have got everything. They don't think they have, but they have. They've got the two cars. They've got the nice house. They've got, well, they did have the foreign holidays until this um, virus came along, and it's really hard to convince them that there's anything that they really need. Wealth, in that sense, can blind. I think a good motto in, as regards wealth is John Wesley's, uh, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. I quite like that as a motto. Then you'll have noticed in the passage <clears throat> about his family, he had seven sons and three daughters. Uh, these were, by the way, considered to be perfect numbers. Um, They had birthday parties, at least 10 per year, and these went on for a long time. Verse 5 speaks of them feasting, and these were, I don't think, um, drunken debaucheries. They were delightful family gatherings. So why did he sacrifice? Now again, it's interesting that even at this stage of, of human history, he was aware of the need for sacrifice and of atonement. He sacrificed because as a godly parent, he was concerned for his children. He was the de facto priest within his family. His religion was inward and spiritual, but he also recognized the need to to express it outwardly. And you'll notice that he did it regularly. This was Job's regular custom. Um, He was concerned that perhaps his children had cursed God in their hearts The very sin, by the way, that Job is going to be tempted to after he goes through all his troubles, the devil says, come and curse God. And and Job did not want that to happen to himself or to his children. Now, so that's the background. That's the picture. He lives in wealth. He lives in comfort. He lives in worship. But the storm clouds were coming. And maybe some of us are aware of that. Maybe some of us have had the storm clouds. Um, what are the great themes of this book? Uh, let me just mention those um, because I do think it's important to have them. It's the story of a man who loses everything he has except his life and then is faced with answering and asking why and these are not how will I put it trite and trivial answers these are deep and profound questions, and there are deep and profound answers. Here's the interesting thing. When I preached through this book, it never crossed my mind that the people who would appreciate it the most were people who were not Christians, who came along out of curiosity. I've never had such a reaction to anything as that, and it took me a while, because I'm not that smart, to work out why, and then I did work out why, and it's because The questions that Job wrestles with are the questions that most of us wrestle with at some point or other in our lives. So for example, one of the key ones always is why is there suffering? We, um, I think this is asked in all cultures, but particularly in ours. I wrote a book for teenagers called Ask, and I wrote to 21 teenagers in 21 different countries in all the continents and ask them for any question. You, you ask me any question that you would like to from the Bible or about God, and we'll see what we can do. Now, here's the fascinating thing: the only countries that asked about suffering were the ones were the Western countries, countries where there was a great deal more suffering, at least outwardly. Um, I, I was intrigued that I just didn't get that question. There were some questions that came from every country. But the suffering one wasn't but it came from every western country which i find interesting um, i think because we work on this model we list the problem we identify the cases we propose solutions we try and have a scientific analysis of the um situation there's got to be a solution we can work it out so COVID 19 there's got to be a solution the government will find a way and if they don't find a way we will blame them now this book does not give us the answer it really doesn't it, job's friends come to him and, and they've got a really straightforward and simple answer job you're suffering because of your sin the book doesn't accept polytheism nor does it accept the closed universe view that god does not interfere it argues that there's limitation there's no limitation to the power and goodness and god but it doesn't say that it'll all work out in heaven because job's struggling how to cope with suffering now and it is a struggle. It's not just a little talk with Jesus and everything will be all right. Job's message is that the suffering is common to all but is particular to each individual. Um, there's a couple of questions that I'll come to at the end, but here's a, another one in terms of a general thing for, the, for um, the theme of the book. Is suffering always deserved? Why do I suffer? I remember one woman Um, it was the third death in her family. She just had a miserable life. She was an elderly woman who'd buried her children. And she just looked at me one day and she said, what have I done to deserve this? What have I done? And that's what Job wrestles with. The clear answer of the whole book is suffering is not always deserved. It may be deserved. If I get drunk and drive my car at 120 miles an hour, Not that my car could drive at that speed, but if I did that and drove into a wall and was severely injured, if I'm turning around and going, well, why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? That's the answer to that is is fairly clear. On the other hand, you may remember in, in West Sydney a few months ago, there was a family that lost three of their children to a drunk driver. Why were they suffering? It wasn't their fault. But suffering is not always deserved. It's not the case that you're always being punished if you're suffering. In the words of R.E.M., everybody hurts. Everybody hurts. And being a Christian does not give you an immunity to suffering. Acts 14.22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships, through much suffering, to enter the kingdom of God. The main theme of the book is how do I suffer? Uh, Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him to his death. And there it's the question of submission to the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Suffering shows what we really think about God. If you think of your circumstances, are you prosperous? Are you in good health? Things going well? So what do you say? Do you say, I've got this by my own hand? I really deserve this? Or are your circumstances circumstances of despair? What do you then think of God? Do you think of God at all? I mean, it is possible to serve God without thought of what we can get. And I think sometimes people will go, well, I just don't believe in God because of suffering. I've often discussed this question with people and they'll say they don't believe in God because of suffering, but if, if they had any belief in God at all, it was the Santa Claus kind of God. What do I mean by that? So if you believe that God exists to help you pass your exams, to make you wealthy, and to ensure that neither your ran, rabbit nor your granny dies, then when you fail your exams, when you don't become a millionaire, when you are sick, when your granny does die, when your rabbit doesn't live, well, clearly that God doesn't exist. So you no longer believe in that God, but you shouldn't have believed in that God anyway. He never existed. God is not the guarantee that we don't suffer. We live in a world of suffering. I think the best interpretation of all of Job is in the New Testament, in James. It's a good principle, by the way, always to interpret the Bible by the Bible. James 5, verse 10 to 11. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's (coughs) perseverance, and I've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And that really is what Job is saying. It's saying there's suffering in this world. You ain't going to get around it. Saying you don't believe in God doesn't take away suffering. The question is not so much why there is suffering. The question rather is what has God done about suffering, and how will we respond to suffering? So that's what we're going to look at over the next three weeks. Uh, I'm going to leave it there. There are a couple of questions. Let me um, deal with those, and then if anyone's got any more, feel free. Um, David, I'll just just give you a pause and
0: give people a chance to perhaps um, jot down some questions. So we've got plenty of time, which is great. And you can see at the base of your screen there's the chat function. So Mm -hmm. please feel free to ask a question generally or of uh, David. Um, and look, pe- perhaps I can just start with this one, David. Uh, you, you discussed um, part of the point of Job is to show that you, you know not all suffering is deserved. Can you compare other religions? What what other religions say about uh, suffering and blame or fault?
1: Yeah, th- that's really really interesting. Um, I, 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 let me give you just basically two extremes. On the one hand, Islam has this very strong doctrine of the absoluteness of God. And th- this very also um, works, you know, so if, if you are good, then God will bless you. And if you're bad, then he won't. But it also has this view that God can be completely capricious and do whatever he wants, um, which Christianity does not teach, uh, by the way. The one that intrigues me the most is Buddhism, because for a while, Buddhism was there, it was, and, and for some people still is, the cool, hip, happening, trendy um, thing. And it, it does, the Buddhism that exists in the West does tend to be a particularly Western version, which misses out some of the harder doctrines. But this is what Buddhism teaches. Buddhism teaches that if you are lying in a gutter begging, it's because you were bad in a previous life if you're suffering in this life, it's your karma. And that's why compassion can be quite difficult because you look at somebody and you say, well, you deserve it. You were bad in a previous life. Um, I I think virtually all religions operate to some degree on that basis. What I would call, I think lots of Christianity does, by the way, as well. I, I think a lot of people were taught kind of in Sunday school, you know, be good and the devil won't get you and God will bless you. Um, whereas I think real Christianity doesn't say that. Real Christianity says, look, you're a mess. There's evil in your heart. You can't save yourself. The world's a mess. You can't save the world. The world can't save itself. We need a savior and that savior is Jesus. And so I, I think there's a there's a fundamental difference between what I would call biblical Christianity and the religious view. Do you want me to do some of the other questions there? Yes.
0: Yeah. That'd be great. Thank you, yeah. David. There's a couple
1: up there. Yeah. Okay. Um, How do we balance the Bible's commands for charitable giving the woman who gave all that she had, the Macedonians who gave in their extreme poverty, and living wisely, saving for disasters, saving for a mortgage, and so on? Um, I do think Wesley's maxim save all you can, you know, give all you can, earn all you can is good. Um, I think that. It's, it's very interesting. I've, I've found in my years in ministry that often it's poorer people who are more generous or who, are, or who of all people should be saying, well, we need to keep this because we need it for our immediate needs. Um, I don't think it's wrong to have insurance. I, I don't think it's wrong for someone to have wealth. But I think how we use that wealth is, is the important thing. Um, I think the biggest argument we ever had at a Bible study once uh, that I belonged to was, was it right to own a porsche um i think that people are looking for rules they're looking for a line and so that they can go right up to the edge of that line and i think that as christians we those of us who are christians we need to be much more radical than that we need to think of how much we can give away um i think from a non-christian perspective um, you can give everything that you have but if you don't have love then you're nothing that's what paul says in corinthians So I'm reluctant to make laws about this, but I do think that particularly in the Western church, we've ignored a lot of the Bible's teaching about wealth and giving. Um, Jesus has 10 times more to say about that than he does about sex and sexuality, for example. So maybe we need to rebalance and think things through. And I say this um, for myself because I've noticed about myself that I always find that I'm just, I just need a little bit more, you know, and I don't have too much. But in reality, in light of the whole world, I have, I would say, I'm in the top 10% of people in the world. So I don't think I should really complain. Um, is Job thought to have been before Abraham, with him apparently not being Jewish? When is this book thought to be accepted as part of the Jewish scriptures? Yes, I think it is thought to have been before scripture, before Abraham, and, and it's one of the earliest, it's it's possibly even the earliest book of the Bible. Um, when the book has been accepted, the story of Job, like much of the Bible, is an oral culture. Um, as far as I'm aware, the, the Book of Job has been accepted from the beginning when uh, when the the Torah was was drawn up. Uh, Stuart says, on the topic of legal poetry, have a look at The Wandering Minstrels blog. So, OK, I will. Thank you. Uh, as we read this book, is there anything distinct or special to be noted of Job's relationships with his immediate family? Yeah, I think his relationship with his wife is good, <laughs> although um, Later on, as he's afflicted with illness, she complains of bad breath, and she she herself is overwhelmed. I'm reluctant to blame Job's wife in anything, given the disaster that occurs to her and losing all her children. Um, there seems to be a real closeness to his family, but I think the one thing that stands out that is what I mentioned in the talk, that he was concerned for the spiritual well-being of his family. And I would say to Those who are Christians who are listening to this, particularly if you're male, now I don't want to get into this argument about male headship and so on. I don't think it's anything to do with money or intellect or who's in charge of the house and all that kind of stuff. I think it's simply this. You are responsible for the spiritual well-being of your family. And Job certainly felt that. And uh, again, like the wealth thing, that's a responsibility for me. That's just an awesome one um well oh, someone's asking if you've got a friend who wants to get the city legal email updates and weekly zoom links what's the best way for them to sign up peter i'll leave you to answer that do you want to yeah, say something yeah. to that? I, I i already have all right good man um how should we respond if our lives are changed for what we might perceive as the worst like what happened with job do you know that's yeah that's interesting um Uh, As I mentioned here before, in in 2011, I almost died. I was in hospital. My life did change. My family's life changed for much the worse. Um, Do you know what it makes you do if you're a Christian? It makes you rely on God. And uh, the response, I think, should ultimately be Job's response. Now, Job gets some things wrong. God um, challenges him, but also says about him at the end, no one's like my servant Job. And I think that we respond with trust sometimes without knowing. In other words, it's like trust in the dark. My starting point is always God is good, God is just, God is love, God is fair. And I may look at circumstances and say, that's not fair, that's not just, that doesn't appear to be loving. And what I then have to do is say, okay, I'm going to park that for the moment because I don't accept that God can lie. So let me give you an example. It's a ridiculous example, but it, this did happen. Uh, a friend of mine came to see me once, and he was one of, um, you know, I'm not particularly like this, but he was one of these Christians who is, hallelujah, everything is great, you know, so how are you? Oh, wonderful, praise the Lord, everything's fantastic. Everything was always great, everything was always full, everything was always joyous. And one day he came to see me and I, I was a student at the time and in my hall of residence. And uh, I said to him, how are you? And he said, oh, I'm just miserable. I'm fed up. And I went, hallelujah. It's just, that's great. <laughs> just to hear you even say that. Um, I said, what happened? He said, God lied to me. I says, whoa, wait a minute. Where, where are you going with this one? He said, God promised me I had a prophecy that I was going to marry this girl. And he says, well, what's happened? She's married someone else. God lied. And I said, no, no, wrong way around. You have got to start with the premise that God doesn't lie and then you have to work out that possibly you may have got this wrong. In in what you thought he was saying, and I think that is, for me, a very good position. You start with God as the foundation, not your experience. Your experience may be incredibly painful. Uh, Jesus was once asked if the reason someone suffered was due to their sin and said that the reason was so God could be glorified. Can't recall the exact passage. This related to a healing that Jesus did. How do we explain suffering if healing, no relief from suffering, doesn't occur? Okay. Uh, the passage was uh, the, the man who was born blind and who sinned, this man or his parents, Jesus was asked. And he said, neither, but this happened that you may see the glory of God. Another time he talks about a, 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 an accident where the tower of siloam collapsed and 18 people were killed another time he talks about a terrorist incident or government oppression where um, a number of jewish nationalists were massacred by the roman citizens and their blood mixed with the blood of the galileans and so on and uh, uh and again he's asked about this and he said look what he doesn't say is these things just happen he says look this reminds you That this world is going to end, end that there is going to come a time of judgment and all of us these things can happen too um i think it's a very dangerous thing for a christian to say if we pray for healing god will give us healing we pray for god's will to be done i do pray for healing um when i was ill one of my colleagues a fellow minister was also seriously ill with cancer he was supposed to die I was supposed, He was supposed to live. His prognosis was that he would live. My prognosis was I would die. I lived. He died. How do you? you, I remember speaking to his widow, and we we had a lovely time together. Um, Just don't make it simplistic. You you, you, in in this world, there is sorrow, and ultimately, you know, I'm thinking all this COVID stuff. People talk about how we're preventing deaths, we're saving lives. No, no, no. We we never prevent death all that we do is delay death and you know that's a a thought for us to remember um how do we strike the balance between giving all we have now time money and preparing to be able to give better through career and future you strike balance in the christian life by being godly in other words nobody gives all that they have at one level but on another level you can say you can so i'm looking around just now and okay let me make a confession i like Malt whiskey. Okay. Malt whiskey is not cheap. Uh, for many years, people knew that I liked malt whiskey. And um, I was like the, the woman's um, bowl that never ran dry because uh, I lived off gifts of malt whiskey for about 18 years before I bought any. But then I ran out and one day I thought, you know, I, I, I would quite like to have a malt whiskey again. Will I go and buy one? And I wrestled with it because I thought, how can I waste you know, $80, $90, $100 on alcoholic drink or any drink or any, you know. And yes, I think excess is wrong, but God gives us all things richly to enjoy and to have something which gives you pleasure. That doesn't mean to say that you cannot use what you are and who you are. Are we not to have any pleasure in this life? Should we not listen to any Music? Should we only wear sackcloth? Um, I don't think so. But I think balancing it out, realizing that we don't live for these things. Personally, I don't think I could buy a $40,000 bottle of malt whiskey and keep it in my um, study just to show off. I think that's wrong. Obviously, I think it's wrong. I don't think I could buy it to drink it either. But how we strike the balance for me is that's a question of wisdom. Coming back to where we came in at the beginning and i i don't know the answer i'm spending my life working that out but i think reading god's word listening to what jesus says uh not adopting the standards of the people around us those are some basic criteria that i would uh use but that's a listen actually all of these questions are great questions but that that's a key question for me
0: god well, thank you very much, David. we're just just about out of time. um so thanks again for no, speaking this morning from from your heart and, and um, just we're uh, looking forward to hearing David again next week on the next section of Job where the curtains in heaven are drawn back and uh, we get to consider the the question of uh, evil and that the role of the devil. so it's going to be an amazing uh, talk to listen to. so thank you very much for being with us again this morning. we'll see you next time. Bye bye. Thanks
1: folks. Good to be with you.
0: Bye bye. Bye.